The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org. Radio Network. I'm your host, James Shrepfer, and on this episode, I am joined by Father Anthony Chicada of St. Gertrude the Great Church in Westchester, Ohio. Father, uh, glad to have you back with us. Happy to be back again for another controversy. <laughs> the endless script. The endless so, script. <laughs> this episode, as the case for all our non-sponsored episodes, is free for the first five minutes to non-members. To receive access to all Restoration Radio episodes, please visit RestorationRadioNetwork.com. Go to the member area on the menu bar to find out details on becoming a member. On this episode, we are going to be discussing the Society of Pius V yet again and their policy of refusing sacraments to Catholics at the communion rail. So, Father, what's the history uh, when did this start necessarily after your separation from Society of Pius V? Well, to review a little, I think um, uh, the show before last we uh, talked about that, that um, there was a division. The, the source of the division was the nuns, that uh, the order of nuns or the uh, congregation of nuns that um, Father Kelly founded in uh, Round Top. And there was a disagreement over his expulsion of one of the sisters and uh, whether or not one of the other priests had the right to receive vows from her and to let her start a new religious congregation. So that initially was the dispute with him. And uh, um, initially in uh, August of uh, uh, 89, or rather in July or July of 89, uh, we had uh, agreed to part uh, as amicably as we could and not to conduct any sort of public controversy. But uh, very soon after uh, I left Oyster Bay Cove in August, uh, Father Jenkins initiated a controversy down here in Cincinnati over this. And Father Kelly uh, and he began to uh, tell people that uh, by receiving this nun's vows, we were all guilty of mortal sin, and if anyone assisted at our masses and received sacraments from us, that they too would be guilty of uh, mortal sin. So that's kind of uh, the cheery way in which this um, started. And I think elsewhere I've talked about the canonical reasons why that was uh, uh, basically nonsense. But it started over the nuns and then um, uh, eventually moved on uh, to other things. That the, the, the that dispute didn't necessarily um, uh, 
have too much traction with people, so then it was uh, our giving of sacraments to the people from the um, Mount St. Michael's group, the CMRI, and then uh, there was um, the uh, controversy that then they initiated about Archbishop Tuck and how we were giving sacraments to people who somehow were associated with him. So it, it uh the Pius V Society went through a series of reasons for refusing sacraments to our people. So that, that, that in a nutshell, which is a good way to des- describe it, is how the controversy, uh, how, how it's the background to what we're going to talk about tonight. And it seemed from that, the process that you're describing there, that they were kind of looking for something. They were searching out a reason to cause controversy. Uh, yeah, and the idea was that Father Jenkins wanted to found this an independent mass center in Cincinnati, and Bishop Dolan or Father Dolan then initially brought him in to run the school. Uh, this was a way to do it to say that these people uh, in Sharonville are really, really wicked and uh, guilty of mortal sin, and if you are associated with them, you too are guilty of mortal sin, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So then we will start our own. This will justify us starting uh, a mass center on the west side of town, uh, even though we've agreed not to do it. As a layperson sitting in the pews. Once today, going to Mass, no problems. The next Sunday, now I'm all of a sudden participating in scandal and sin, and uh, I, I can't be going to you uh, for sacraments anymore. Is there any sort of guiding principles a Catholic should follow when looking at controversies like this? Well, one of the things that I discovered early on is that you have to uh, research exactly what the church's teaching is on a particular controverted point, be it the question of of of, of the Pope, be it the question of the new ordination rites, be it the, the question of the new master, be it the question of uh, the administration of sacraments. So you actually have to um, uh, do some uh, research, sometimes a considerable amount of research, because occasionally the questions are a little bit obscure, and try to determine what the mind of, of the church is as uh, regards these these different issues, be they a question of canon law, be they a question of uh, sacramental theology. So that's what you have to uh, start rooting around in and, and uh, start looking up. Over the years, I know different marriages, uh, interactions between chapels. Someone comes to a communion rail society of Pius V, and they also go to either uh, a priest of St. Gertrude the Great or a CMRI priest, and they find themselves rejected at the communion rail. They can't receive the, the sacrament. Yeah, it, that's it, not something that's, that merely happens historically. It happens all the time. Uh, in fact, there was a couple who... Uh, lived in the greater Chicago area, and the guy was a convert to the faith. He was received into the church, uh, uh, actually baptized, uh, uh, receiving adult baptism. Uh, he was, a, uh, uh, I believe, a Hindu before, if I'm not mistaken. And in any event, he uh, married a, a traditional Catholic girl and uh, converted to the Catholic faith. And so they went to the uh, 
Pius V Mass Center on the west side of Chicago somewhere, and uh, this uh, guy went to uh, uh, Holy Communion, the priest gave him communion, but then afterwards he um, called him into the sacristy and grilled him, and when he found out uh, this this guy had been uh, received in the church and uh, baptized by us, and that he had he had uh, assisted at our masses, etc., uh, he told him he couldn't receive communion. So this was just uh, actually a couple of months ago, I think. So it's 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 oh, wow. an ongoing problem, and it's it, it happens in situations like that. It happens in. Um, uh, the in uh, uh, Cincinnati in the Cincinnati area, we're on the north um, north side of Cincinnati now, and the Pius V Church is is down in, in town, and uh, people uh, who from here who have gone over there um, and uh, tried to receive Holy Communion, they are refused at the rail if they're recognized. And sometimes newcomers are not given communion at all until they're grilled. So this is an, an, an active um, policy of the organization. As members of the church, you know, having been baptized in the in the Catholic Church, uh, does the priest have the option to give uh, the sacraments to whoever he wants, or is there something to guide his behavior? Well, how it uh, how it works is the uh, the way the law of the church expresses it is is this that uh, if uh, unless there is an, uh, some sort of impediment as d- uh, defined by church law that you you have the right to receive holy communion and the priest has the uh, uh, duty to give you the sacrament. So it's it's that's how it's it's set up. It's not some sort of an uh, some sort of an optional thing, and it's a right that you have under uh, not just church law but also under uh, divine law. Unless there's some impediment that uh, in church law that forbids you from uh, receiving holy communion. And so, from your article, the great excommunicator, which we'll be quoting extensively tonight. Um, you've got listed in here Canon 853, which states every baptized person not forbidden by law may and must be admitted to Holy Communion. And I believe you quote a, a commentary on that from Augustine. So he, he mentions the fact that this is, in fact, divine right, and that priests are duty-bound to offer every opportunity to the faithful for receiving communion and to lay aside unreasonable and Jansenistic scruples. So it's, it's, it's clearly something that you have a right to. So uh, unless there, there, there is something that's uh, laid out in the law uh, preventing it. The... Um, origin of of the article that you're referring to the great excommunicator by the way you're probably not old enough but that's a um, uh, play on the title that was given to ronald reagan who is the great communicator so i decided the great excommunicator would be a a good one for the article (laughs) but the uh the uh actually the the origin of this article um was the uh, um, or notes from the debate that I had with Father Jenkins about this over at Immaculate Conception in I think 2002, 
And the origin of that actually is uh, interesting that there is a, in fact, it was a, a, a marriage question. Um, there was a, a, a nice guy from a trad family over there had taken an interest in a, a nice Catholic young lady over here at St. Gertrude's, and um, they've uh, wanted to get married, and the guy talked with me, and we went through a number of different issues, and, uh, you know, he was fine with all of the, the uh, different issues. Well, there were problems in his family over it because um, Father Jenkins was um, uh, putting uh, all of these bugs into their ears about how we're schismatic, et cetera, et cetera. So it, w- what happened is the bull um, was going to go ahead and get uh, married at St. Gertrude's anyway. Uh, so uh, I thought that the problem had more or less been solved. And indeed it was as far as they went, but uh, the um, uh, parent of... of um, one of the um, uh, future spouses uh, kind of insisted that, uh, well, you know, you really should have a debate with Father Jenkins about this, a public debate. So I did. And uh, that, surprisingly, is somewhere on the Internet. Uh, You you can find that. And um, what you have in this article, The Great Excommunicator, is essentially the notes and documentation from, uh, from that debate. And I and I would encourage listeners as well to to look up that that debate and listen to it. It was excellent with the kitchen timer and everything. So uh, we'll not we'll not have too many spoilers, but it is an excellent debate to listen to. I um, felt sorry so, for the poor couple. You know, <laughs> they ended up you know some, some engagement party. You know, <laughs> that is the issue, and that's why we're we're continuing to talk about this controversy because it it not only disrupts marriages, disrupts homes, but also scandalizes, I know, several family members who no longer go to church because of all the Jansenistic principles the Society of Pius V has brought up. And if you apply it to their society, nobody's left standing. And so family members of mine are like, well, you can't go anywhere anymore. Uh, it really discourages them. Would you say that the right to receive communion, Father, is similar to like a constitutional right uh, of an American being a, a U.S. citizen. Well, it's it's uh, you know in this sense it's it's a, uh, a, a fundamental right that you have, and um, uh, in that sense it's true. Only this is something that that uh, uh, comes from the law of uh, law uh, law of uh, God itself, himself, and it it. it uh, it is something that uh, endows you with, uh, you, you know, the right to receive the sacrament and uh, imposes uh, this obligation on the priest as well. A lot of the um, time, in fact, in the uh, canon law and moral theology courses that um, speak of, of the uh, administration of the sacraments uh, is devoted to the different obligations that the minister has. So the the, the minister's um, uh, function of uh, conferring a sacrament is not seen as um, uh, some sort of an extra that is given uh, to a person to exercise, but rather it's uh, something that's seen in terms of a, a duty. 
duty to administer the sacraments. And so, Father, if if a Catholic has the right to receive communion, when does the priest or when is the priest obligated to refuse communion to an individual? Okay, so the the, the other side of that question is uh, is this, that if a person is considered to be publicly unworthy to receive communion, then the, the priest is, is forbidden to give it to him. So uh, someone who is excommunicated um, under other some sort of uh, other ecclesiastical penalty, uh, or uh, who is somehow a public sinner, uh, the, such a person can't uh, uh, or is barred from receiving communion until this this impediment is uh, resolved. Uh, to get to that point. Uh, though for for a priest to refuse you, uh, he uh, it has to be clear that uh, you know somehow you are publicly unworthy, and that you fall into to one of these categories where you would be forbidden to receive Holy Communion. So the 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 point that I made about this was that well okay uh, this this couple how are they publicly unworthy? to receive Holy Communion, and your your choices are limited. Uh, you know, are they excommunicated somehow? Are they under another penalty like interdict or notorious infamy? Or is there some other church law that would bar them from receiving Communion? And, okay, so uh, you, Father Jenkins and company, and, and uh, uh, Bishop Kelly and company are saying that, well, uh, they're... Um, uh, they have to be barred from the sacraments. So you've got a limited number of choices here. You've got maybe five choices, five headings. So tell me which one it is, please. And and what dictates or how do we know what classifies somebody as public unworthy? Well, the the, the church law goes through this stuff. So if there's a penalty like excommunication, um, the uh, person has clearly incurred excommunication. So, uh, but then if you bring that up, okay, uh, the, then uh, my challenge is there are 44 offenses in the old code that uh, incur excommunication. Which one of them uh, is are, are these uh, are the future spouses guilty of? You know. There's a limit that you just just can't say, well, you know, I feel that they they have incurred an excommunication. Tell me which one, and we'll talk about it, please. Okay. And so uh, there's obviously there's an inability to do that. I challenge Father Jenkins to it. I have the list. You know, show me where, which one. Okay, and then we can talk about it. But um, uh, what the type of responses you get? A uh, the, the sort of staring into the air and this this idea that well oh you're being so legalistic well yeah sure I'm being legalistic because the divine law says you've got the right to receive the Eucharist and the church law says that you have the obligation to give it to them so I mean show me uh, the basis for your acting and your refusal and that's and that's the, that's the problem you know here's a list <laughs> you know you pick. It's like the Chinese restaurant. You know, pick one from the column that you think applies. You know, excommunication, interdict, and notorious infamy, some other church law, or public and notorious sinners. Right? Which uh, uh, which daily special do you want? <laughs> <laughs> and so, to date, Father, 
has Father Jenkins actually ever listed an excommunication or uh, notorious infamy that your parishioners or CMRI parishioners would be guilty of? Well, no. I mean, and, and that's the point. And, you know, I publicly challenged him to do it, put the list in front of him, and he couldn't do it, and nor could uh, Bishop Kelly, nor could any of these people, uh, because it isn't there. They, they've they've made something up. And um, uh, so, uh, and if they say it's another church law, well, fine, I, they're, uh, you know, we're, uh, what, 2,414 canons in the traditional code of canon law. Uh, tell me which one. I'll go and look it up. Uh, and I'll look up the commentary myself. Uh, so uh, the, but no, they they couldn't do that. And then as far as public and notorious sinners, okay, what sin is it? What sin are they guilty of? That is, is a public sin that would, would bar them from the reception of the sacraments. And, uh, uh, there's nothing there either that they can come up with. Just tell me the, give me the reference in a moral theology book. Don't give me your opinion. Tell me where to go, and uh, I'll look it up myself. And to be a public and notorious sinner, you have had to commit a sin that everyone knows about or is public knowledge, correct? Yes, that's right. right. In other words, if 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 it is well known, let's say that someone is. Um, uh, that a uh, married guy uh, has um, dumped his wife and is uh, living with a woman who's not his wife, uh, that is a, uh, then he's considered a public sinner. And, and that there's, there's some sort of a public uh, knowledge, uh, acknowledgement of that. Okay, so and uh, then in in that case, you know, you could refuse, or in the case of let's say someone who comes up to the um, uh, communion rail who is uh, let's say uh, obscenely or immodestly attired, you know that that uh, uh, that is is uh, that violates a rule that violates the law of the church uh, as well. So th- there are uh, you know certain. Uh, cases like that, where yes, you could refuse, but uh, there, there has to, it has to be clear and there has to be public knowledge because what you're doing is you are saying that the divine right that this person has to receive the Eucharist uh, is something that um, uh, does uh, not apply because of this or that condition. And Augustine here, quoting from the commentary on the 1917 Code, he states the next question is who are public notorious sinners. And quoting him, he, he says, goes on to say, according to the same pontiff, sinners are public and notorious if A, they have been declared such by an ecclesiastical judge, or B, if they have publicly confessed their crimes, or as we say, pleaded guilty, or C, if they have committed in word or deed a crime that still lasts and is known to the public as not atoned for, and therefore is a source of scandal. And so if I'm reading this correctly, there has to be a sin committed. Yeah, and and, um, uh, it has to be committed, and it has to be clear, because uh, uh, there has to be no question about it, and uh, there has to be public knowledge of it. So uh, that's uh, that's the basis for it. And that's the basis on which you couldn't no longer exercise your right to receive the Eucharist. 
Now, Father uh, Father Jenkins would claim that your interpretation of the canon is faulty, to put it in his own words, because if someone, let's say, comes up to the communicale with a baseball cap, he claims that he would not fall underneath any of those categories. What would be your response to to that point? Well, the response of the kid in the baseball cap is that he's not properly attired for communion, and that's a, a public manifestation of disrespect for the Eucharist, right? And that's so a he's sin, not pro- Father, is it not? Yeah. And so the the idea is that we show respect for the Eucharist by certain um, uh, certain practices, certain customs, certain laws, and uh, that's what we have to uh, that's what we have to abide by. And for a man, it's to have your head uncovered, or, uh, and that's how it works, you know. So uh, that is the uh, that's the basis for that, because it's 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 it's, it's uh, an act that is. Uh, uh, publicly sinful in the sense that it manifests manifests objectively a uh, disrespect for the Eucharist. Oh, I I thought, Father, maybe it fell under a different classification, like the church was prejudiced against New York Yankee fans or something. <laughs> I, I don't think so. Uh, certainly the, the, the church uh, before Vatican II under uh, Cardinal Spellman wasn't, so definitely <laughs> not. <laughs> So the the point being, it would still fall underneath one of those categories, which would allow the priest to um, refuse communion to the individual. Yeah, and the thing is, though, that if, if it's uh, you know even there, though something is clearly uh, done out of disrespect. Uh, if someone is a doofus and has forgotten, well, you know, say take your hat off, kid, and uh, oh, sorry, I forgot, Father. Well, there's no problem. All right. But the uh, the idea is, is uh, that if it is something that is um, uh, you know clearly done out of communicated out of disrespect, you know that's uh, that's another thing. We would like to remind you that you are listening to Trad Controversies on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host James Trumper, and I'm joined tonight by Father Anthony Chicada of Saint Gertrude the Great Church in Westchester, Ohio. Today we've been discussing the Society of Pius V and their rules for refusing communion to faithful who attend other state of a conscious clergy. We'd like to remind you that Trad Controversies is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. Permission can usually be very easily obtained by writing to mail at truerestoration.org. And so, Father, if it, if it doesn't fall underneath one of those categories, the only other real claim they could throw against you would be perhaps now uh, you or CMRI people that attend there are non-Catholics or schismatics. So, uh, Father, yeah. what makes someone a, a non-Catholic a schismatic once they've been accepted into the church? Well, if, you, if, you're, uh, if you're baptized uh, uh, in the church... Right, as a Catholic and raises a Catholic, uh, that is, uh, and you profess the Catholic faith, and you haven't separated yourself somehow from the Church. Excuse me. Then you're you're considered to be a you're considered to be a Catholic. So uh, um, what you have to do to re- refuse someone 
communion on the basis of that is that you have to show that some someone has uh, is guilty of uh, heresy or uh, is guilty of sin, of uh, schism or has been uh, excommunicated by church authority so that your your options there are uh, are limited for defining someone as as a non-catholic so if you want to say someone is a schismatic, then he, uh, he has that has to be someone who refuses submission to the Roman Pontiff, or rejects communion with the members of the Church who are subject to him. Now, all this, this is these are definitions in Canon thirteen twenty five of um, of the old code. So if um, uh, you say that I'm a schismatic, I mean, please tell me. You know that that uh, when I refused, if there is a Roman Pontiff, when did I refuse to be subject to him, or uh, refuse communion with the members of the Church who were subject to him? Okay. So the thing is that that all of these these categories are very uh, narrowly defined. So if if uh, you want to say that Father Chicago put himself outside the Church somehow, um, uh, then uh, you have to show how he did it. But uh, that still doesn't necessarily get uh, you to the point where um, uh, you, uh, you refuse uh, the um, you refuse cha- uh, sacraments. Someone who assisted my mass that still doesn't get you even to that. So the burden of proof is one, once you're a baptized Catholic, the burden of proof that you are a schismatic, heretic, or have somehow become a non-Catholic falls upon the person accusing, correct? Uh, I believe that's Canon 1748 of the Old Code. Uh, yes, and 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 uh, you know you have have to meet the different these different uh, criteria to do that. And uh, again, what we're talking about is it's a right uh, to receive communion, and you have to. Um, to uh, publicly refuse some of the sacraments, there has to be a one of the conditions in law has to be met to take it away, to take away that right from them. Now, Father Jenkins would argue that perhaps you or the faithful that attend uh, St. Gertrude the Great for Mass are not heretics, schismatics, or excommunicated themselves, that because Archbishop Tuck was excommunicated according to Father Jenkins that that's a contagious disease now and, and you all caught it. Yeah and uh, the, the uh, while uh, he may very well maintain that, uh, that position has nothing to do with canon law uh, because the uh, uh, two points, first of all he has to show that Tuck was somehow excommunicated uh, in, in a cre- uh, credible way and that doesn't uh, good luck with that. Uh, and uh, secondly, then he has to show somehow that his excommunication is contagious and that it affects anyone who ever receives sacraments from anyone who is consecrated or ordained by him and uh, all the people uh, down the, who would descend down the line. And, of course, church law doesn't work that way. That's pure fantasy. So as far as proving that Tuck was excommunicated, as I say, good luck, we can talk about that in a second. But as far as uh, proving then that somehow it's contagious, that's not how penalties work in the church. Uh, You know, you can hoodwink 
people into lay people into thinking that maybe that is how they work, but in fact, that's not how they work. So an excommunication deals specifically with the person that would have broken the law and not those that would be associated or shake hands with that individual afterwards. Yes, that's correct. And uh, it is not a... um, uh, it's not like a disease like that virus down in Brazil uh, that, um, uh, or, uh, you know, like some sort of a flu virus that you catch at the communion rail, that somehow because um, Father Jenkins claims that uh, Tuck uh, either consecrated someone who was unworthy or ordained someone who was, who was uh, worthy back in 1981, that somehow that goes from uh, that ex- uh, whatever, that contagion, goes from him to Bishop Carmona, uh, uh, Moses Carmona, who was consecrated by Tuck, um, uh, to, uh, say, uh, Bishop Piverunas, who was consecrated by Carmona, to all the people at uh, Mount St. Michael's, some of whom received um, uh, sacraments from me at our mission up in St. Clair's in Columbus, uh, and then um, also maybe came to Mass down here and then somehow infected the people at the communion rail of St. Gertrude the Great uh, so that um, they can be refused by the sacraments if they go across town uh, 30 years later to Father Jenkins' place. It doesn't work that way. When you work out the steps, it's absurd. It sounds absurd because it is absurd. Church was extremely uh, uh, rational and sensible when it comes to uh, stuff like penalties and um, uh, stripping people of their rights. And, and Father, dealing with, let's take worst-case scenario, let's say, ex, not that they are, but let's say excommunications were contagious to all the clergy that ever were involved in talk. Let's let's talk about Canon twenty two sixty one. So what is Canon twenty two sixty one? Twenty two sixty one tells you that for a even though an excommunicated uh, minister is uh, forbidden to uh, legally to confer the sacraments. Uh, that nevertheless, for a, a, a reason, a good reason, a member of the faithful may approach him for sacraments if there's this, if there's some sort of a need. So it, it is a uh, so even if you're you're um, uh, if you had the worst case scenario there, uh, the law of the church would still let you. Uh, let a lay person uh, approach someone who's uh, excommunicated for a uh, uh, for a sacrament. So it's not the the um, uh, even if the whole scenario were true, if you follow the law of the church, uh, the result for the layman would be the opposite. He couldn't be penalized for doing that. Um, and just and just read the canon, maybe for our listeners. Um, part two of Canon twenty two sixty one reads. Uh, exceptions provided in paragraph three, and that refers to someone who has been excommunicated by name, solemnly excommunicated by name by the Roman pontiff. Uh, the faithful can, for any just cause, ask for sacraments or sacramentals of one who is excommunicated, especially if there is no one else to give them. And in such cases, the excommunicated person so asked 
may administer them and is not obliged to ask the reason for the request. So it even gets the excommunicated cleric off the uh, off the hook for something like that. So that's how how broad the law of the church is. Even um, you know Father Jenkins uh, continued to reference that uh, Archbishop Tuck incurred the most severe excommunication, even though it was a severe excommunication, given it was an automatic excommunication by law. All mm-hmm. those are only tolerantus, not vitandus, unless it's by name, correct? Yeah, yeah, and, and what we're, we're, so our uh, listeners understand this, that, that the... Um, uh, the most serious category of uh, excommunication is one that's uh, reserved in the most special way to the Roman Pontiff, A, and that uh, uh, where it is uh, imposed um, uh, on you by a decree, you are named in the decree, and uh, the decree says you are to be avoided, you are a vitandus. Okay? So that's the most serious um uh, type of excommunication. So that uh, that uh, the Vitanas part obviously didn't happen to Tuck, um, uh, uh, but uh, you know the, the part of the this, this is uh, the other part of the fantasy is that uh, Tuck was um, excommunicated under a uh, decree uh, of uh, Pius the Twelfth on Apostolorum Principis. But uh, that is also based on a uh, misunderstanding and a misrepresentation of church law as well. But in any case, it would not be uh, like a uh, communicable disease. If you actually go to the commentary of Augustine on Canon 2261, he says for any any just cause, the uh, faithful can go to the excommunicated minister, and he lists several, and I can't remember what they were, but I think he makes it clear, even if it's a matter of convenience, they could go to the excommunicated minister. Sure. Uh, and, I mean, in our own time, uh, you know, it's it's uh, e- e- even a little more than a matter of, of uh, convenience, because it is, in fact, a question of necessity, you know, because they have, there are so few priests who confer sacraments validly. What you have here is, is uh, uh, you know, this this shows how broad the law of the church is. And Father here, quoting from Augustine's commentary on Canon 2261 of the 1917 Code, he states, uh, talking, discussing Part Two, provided the minister is not a vitandus or under a declaratory or condemnatory sentence, the faithful may, for any just reason, ask him to administer the sacraments and sacramentals to them. This is more especially true if no other minister is available, in which case the excommunicated minister thus asked may administer the sacraments and sacramentals without as much as inquiring for the reason why the petitioner wishes to receive them. Hence, the faithful are to judge in such cases whether the reason is just. Any reason may be called just, which promotes devotion or wards off temptation, or is prompted by real convenience. For instance, if one does not like to call another minister, end quote. So, Father, we can clearly see from this commentary that the faithful decide when the reason is just, and the reason for it to be called just is very simple from 
promoting devotion, warding off temptation, or even prompted by real convenience. So, Canon 2261, just to summarize, even if you, you were excommunicated or the CMRI priest, the faithful, if they had a just cause, could go to you for sacraments. Yes, and that is correct. Father Jenkins still hasn't found, I don't believe, an excommunication that you yourself would have incurred. He keeps referring back to one that Archbishop Tuck supposedly incurred. Yeah, and I never met the guy. <laughs> so, uh, well, uh, what he, uh, what they referred to uh, is this uh, Autopostolorum Principis, which was uh, a uh, document that Pius the Tenth issued um, to, uh, in, in response to the uh, Communist Chinese. Um, founding what was called the Catholic Patriotic Association, National Catholic Patriotic Association, and uh, uh, trying to set this up as uh, a uh, ineffective church under the headship of the Communist Party. So uh, there were some some bishops uh, who uh, decided to accommodate the Communist government and went along and consecrated uh, bishops. Uh, for this um, uh, National Catholic Patriotic Association. And Pius XII excommunicated them and issued a, um, a document called uh, Apostolorum Principis, and he uh, put out a decree, uh, a decree saying that um, anyone who um, uh, uh, consecrated a bishop without uh, the correct uh, what's called institutio canonica um, that this person would uh, incur automatic excommunication so that was the uh, that was the uh, decree of Pius the 12th and the um, uh, point to be made is is that uh, the uh, canonists who discussed this decree, uh, uh, specifically Regatello, who was a, um, a sort of a big gun in, in canon law before Vatican II, he was the uh, the head of the canon law department at the University of Comillas in 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 Spain. He did an analysis of this particular. Uh, of these particular decrees, and he said that uh, what it actually applies to is when you um, consecrate a bishop, as the Chinese government did, for uh, the purpose of being an ordinary of a diocese, the head of a diocese. And this is called an institutio canonica. This was the language used in the decree, and that's, the old, that's what the decree uh, applies to. So if, if if you were uh, um, intruding someone uh, to be, you know, the head of the, the Archdiocese of Cincinnati uh, and you consecrated him a bishop for that purpose, that would be the, uh, that's how you would um, incur the excommunications. Otherwise not. Now, Father, you quoted canon, uh, canonist Ragatillo. And Father Jenkins disagreed with that interpretation. Was he able to come up with someone to support his position? No, <laughs> no, and and, and uh, <laughs> there's um, uh, 
uh, and that's consistently the problem with the uh, people who hold this, the, the positions of the Vice Fist Society uh, on uh, this particular matter is they can never manage to come up with someone, uh, a, a canonist who supports the case that they try to make for the refusal of the sacraments. So the, uh, I've never once seen them come up with anything. And I ask all the time, what is, you know, what's the justification? In fact, I've run into Father Jenkins a couple of times in the airport, and uh, I've uh, gone up to him and I asked him, can you give me the number of the canon yet? You know, have you found that yet? And he doesn't want to talk about it, but of course, I know that there is no canon, and he knows there is no canon. And and Father uh, Father Jenkins often refers to the mind of the church or uh, what the church did in the past. My question to you would be, isn't that what the canonists are giving us in relation to the law, what the mind of the church is in relation to it? Well, yeah, that's how, that's how the church... Uh, expressed it was was through law and if you want to find how the laws for the administration of the sacraments work you looked at the commentaries that were written by canonists and experts in sacramental theology and they told you how to proceed because uh, these were uh, you know common questions uh, am I obliged to give this person the sacrament, or uh, must I refuse to give this person the sacrament? And they tell you very clearly. They tell you they, they lay down the principles in all of those cases. So if you want to find the mind of the church, that's where you look. You don't have to be a mind reader like the amazing Kreskin uh, and, uh, you know, figure out what's going on in someone's head. But uh, it, it's written down in books, and it, it can be found out. And Father Jenkins treats him his Ragatil's opinion or commentary on this, Ken, like it's the commentary of Fox News or your average Joe on the street. And yeah, my question, you, you know, like it's Roger Ailes or something like that, or like it's Rush. Uh, on the uh, what is it the uh, EIB network that well you know it's just a sort of uh, an opinion that he is but I mean these are the people that um, uh, these are one of the sources for the in correct interpretation of, of canon law that if you have a question in fact um, you're told to go about the application of the law uh, the uh, commentaries and the general principles that you find at the beginning of, of canon law books for seminarians uh, when they study tells you that that um, so you look for a law of the church if something is unclear then you go to commentaries and you find out how it was applied and uh, that's all that uh, all that I'm doing and uh, that's expected of it should be expected of anyone who wants to um, uh, go off on his own on a point like this. So basically, Father Jenkins is expecting the laity to take his opinion, his private opinion, over someone that the church points to as our guide on what the meaning of these laws is. Yes, and it, it, and those those things are objective and can be found out. And, you know, he can read Latin as well as I can. And if he can, uh, you know, I'm sure he has a library card. 
And if he doesn't have a book, he could go down and uh, look up the different commentaries to see whether or not I'm just woofing. And he can tell us about it. But uh, they have not done that. So, Father, we've kind of gone over uh, whether or not uh, the faithful here attending a sacrament at uh, St. Gertrude the Great or the CMRI uh, we've gone through the various reasons why they would, could be lawfully refused communion, and we've come up pretty bare. Father, in in the debate uh, and in different articles and things, is always talking about scandal. What what is the sin of scandal? Yeah, well, the, uh, fundamentally, what it is is a um, it, it, the the popular definition is I'm shocked at something that someone does. Okay, and that's how uh, people commonly understand this in uh, everyday speech. But uh, again, okay, you say it's scandal. Let's see what the sin of scandal consists of. So you go to a typical moral theology book, and they tell you that it's a word or deed, either omitting or committing something that either is in itself evil or has the appearance of evil, okay, and provides an occasion of sin for another person. So uh, you have to start with something that's, uh, in the first place, that that's evil or that appears to be evil. So the question is, uh, for a parishioner of mine, what evil deed have they committed? What have they done somehow that uh, is 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 the basis for this, for saying that they've done something that's in in itself evil, or has the appearance of evil? Well, the the SSPV response is well, you know, they've re- refused someone that they've received the sacrament from someone who is excommunicated or from someone who is evil, et cetera, et cetera. But the thing is that they haven't shown the first part of that. You know that that what they're talking about is in fact a sin. So it's it ends up being a circular, ends up being a circular argument. So the question is, what evil deed did uh, did my parishioners commit? Some crime against church law. So you know, tell me which one. Give me the canon number. Or if you say it's a public sin, which commandment? And uh, what's what's the species? Of, of the sin. So, uh, in other words, f- there has to be something that is evil or that appears to be objectively evil from the beginning. Otherwise, you end up with uh, a, uh, a false uh, scandal. Uh, that, you, in other words, you've made something up, something that's that's a good action or an indifferent action. Uh, and you, you've you've made something up. So that's the um, uh, that's what we're talking about here. And in fact, when you strip away uh, all of the uh, talk, uh, there's nothing underneath. It's 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 like peeling uh, you know peeling a cabbage or an onion. That there's nothing in the middle. Well, once you peel peel away the different uh, uh, layers of offense. So what you wind up with is a pharisaical scandal, that someone is, is shocked by something uh, Tuck supposedly did, we don't, we don't know for sure, 30 years ago. 
and that's a, a, a basis for refusing to, the um, uh, sacrament to someone uh, here and now 30 years later. But again, it doesn't work that way. So are they just following the safer course, though, Father? <laughs> uh, which which is always which is always really a, a um, uh, really a good one. And their safer course is what? The safer course is to uh, follow the divine law and to give the person the sacrament. <laughs> because this, the 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 safer course is not uh, to uh, uh, doesn't mean you have to refuse the sacrament, but uh, the priest has to fear offending divine law by not uh, conferring the sacrament because he's obliged to do it. So if I'll in fact will uh, uh, give you an example of that, that uh, for the question of modesty of dress, a modesty of women's dress that the um, uh, guidelines that are, are uh, laid down by the, the moralists talk about uh, modesty and dress, and that there's, there's a certain latitude when it comes to uh, socially what is considered immodest, and the, um, uh, that the only place, the only time when you are clearly obliged to uh, refuse the sacrament on grounds of uh, immodesty is when it's absolutely certain that what the woman is wearing is nearly obscene. So the, the, there, there's so much of a uh, so much of a presumption in favor of the reception of the sacrament that it has to be something really grave. Uh, Father, I guess when I heard Father Jenkins say that, or he would make statements such as, "We need to hold ourselves more." closer to the traditions of the church. Father, where would we find the traditions of the church if not in her own laws and the commentaries on those laws from approved writers of the church? Yeah, and that's exactly the point. If you if you want to look for a norm or you want to look for a rule, uh, you know, that is, is where you go. Now, about this this business of well safer course stricter and all this other business that they come up with well the when it comes to taking punishing someone the stricter course for punishing someone is not to uh, say that we're going to err on this uh we're we would be erring if we are merciful to them and don't give them the sacrament the um uh Understanding of 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 uh, the the of following a stricter course when it comes to a penalty means that you can't include in uh, the punishment or under the heading of the crime anything that is not defined within the four corners of the law. So in fact, it's the opposite of what the popular impression would be. So you you have to uh, when it comes to refusing someone or taking away their right. The, the presumption is in their favor that they have it, and you can't add uh, anything under the heading of that punishment that is not specifically expressed in the law. That is the, the, the principle of strict interpretation of penalties in church law. And that would be Canon 2219, Part 1, I believe, it, quoting here. It says, in penalties, the more benign interpretation should be followed. Yes. Uh, and the more benign interpretation is that uh, favors the person who could have incurred the penalty.
and that indeed is supposed to uh is uh you know how it works so Father Jenkins, given that he's making the accusation um we we've talked about he has the burden of proof, and then even in making the accusation in the interpretation of law, we are supposed to follow the more benign interpretation. But Father, isn't Father just following his conscience? Uh, yeah, and uh, the, uh, the the answer to that is that your conscience has to be correctly formed. And uh, the uh, way that you form your conscience is according to the teaching of the Church, uh, not according to some sort of a gut feeling. Uh, and uh, the, the way that you... It's, it's a, a practical application, and when you're the, the, where you're shown uh, how to uh, engage your conscience and how to apply it, that is that you get from uh, the, the principles of moral theologians who write about the sacraments and the um, uh, teachings of the church and from canon law. So that's supposed to form uh, your conscience. Uh, the uh, you don't get to um, short circuit uh, those principles. So uh, you have to square what you're doing with uh, with the law, and that's hammered home time and time and time again in um, the seminary courses. That it, it's so, not just a uh, your conscience is not just as a priest is not supposed to be just sort of out there in the air somewhere and whatever you're you're repelled by or attracted by uh is is uh what your conscience tells you to do no it's it's this has to be uh, formed properly father you're saying if if i had a question on this i would go to a moral theology book such as slater volume 2 page 37 and I would look up the duty of refusing the sacraments to the unworthy and go down and look through where he lists. Ministers are specially required to refuse the sacraments to such as are worthy, given not that which is holy to dogs, said our blessed Lord. The minister should have positive reasons for judging that those who ask for the sacraments of penance and orders are worthy to receive them. So there's supposed to be positive reasons, and, and Slater goes on, uh, to say all lawful subjects who ask for the other sacraments are presumed to be worthy unless it is certain that they are unworthy. Yes, yeah, so that's that's exactly the principle, and that's exactly how it's supposed to work. So the, 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 the presumption is in your favor that you are worthy. So according to Slater here, if I'm reading collecting, Father Jenkins has to be certain that we're guilty of a sin. Certainly, would be more than just an ambiguous, well, scandal. You're guilty of scandal. Yeah, it, it's uh, uh, show us how, you know, and uh, uh, show us how, and show us that you're certain of that. And that's what um, neither he nor anyone else in their organization could do. And they have not done to date, Father, as far as I know, unless you've received a recent letter. <laughs> no, I've uh, the, the uh, same smoke and mirrors. Who, when it comes to the refusal of the sacrament, um, uh, still comes up, 
and uh, you know, as we say, it's a continuing problem. These years since '89, uh, and uh, you know, it's, it's broken up uh, potential marriages and uh, broken up families, and caused an awful lot of heart heartache. Uh, some um, of the pious, the fifth people, uh, the the lay people who go to, uh, uh, do not take it seriously. Uh, they think that that uh, the policy is a joke and um, will uh, go back and forth uh, be, uh, between, uh, for instance, St. Gertrude's and uh, Immaculate Conception without uh, without any problem, without any difficulty. Uh, you know, they, they, they figured it out, it's smoke and mirrors. Others are intimidated by it uh, and have been made to feel guilty uh, by... Um, the priests in the Pius V Society for doing anything like that. And they feel that, well, even if it's goofy, out of loyalty somehow I have to um, continue to do this. But if everyone just simply refused to do it, uh, that would be the end of the line. Uh, and that, that uh, uh, the members of the laity just simply said, we're not going to do it. You can't excommunicate us all. So, um, the uh but as i say they they're um, you know it is is um, good to see that that many people do have common sense so and and father even if you were let's say not excommunicated but let's say you were unworthy um mm-hmm. i came across this in in moral theology book by McHugh and Cowan and oh, they yeah. talk about re- reception of a sacrament from an unworthy minister and this is uh paragraph 2683 and the question is, may a sacrament be received from a minister who, to one's certain knowledge, cannot give it without sin on account of unworthiness, such as a state of sin or censure? And mm-hmm. they say part A here, per se, this is unlawful, for it is a cooperation with sacrilege, and is often attended by scandal and danger of perversion to self. But then it goes to part B, it says, per accident, this is lawful, for material cooperation is justified when a proportionately grave reason exists. Moreover, often the minister can put himself in the state of grace before he gives the sacrament or can be excused from sacrilege on account of necessity. The less the reverence or danger of scandal, the less need be the reason for asking or taking a sacrament from the unworthy person. So even if you were somehow publicly unworthy, we know if you're from Canon 2261, uh, part two, if you were excommun- even if you were excommunicated, we could receive the sacraments from you. Even if you were publicly unworthy, the moral theology books say that if we were in need, we could go to you. How can Father Jenkins, with the state of the church, argue that there isn't the need for us laity, us faithful, to attend priests like you, even if you were guilty of all those things for sacraments, given we don't have the normal pastures? I think the answer to that is that you just stare at the ceiling and shake your head and say, well, you just don't understand. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you just it, it don't understand, James. <laughs> you just don't understand, uh, and right. uh, that's the that's the only kind of answer you're going to get. So, um, and it's one that I've heard, you know, many times. But the problem is that uh, we do understand, and uh, that uh, this is a problem, and. It's it's afflicted a lot of people in a lot of parts of the country, 
and it is a uh, you know as I say it's a continuing problem. I, to me, it sounds like the you know when they, when Father Jenkins talks about the mind of the church or holding more closely to tradition, that it's almost like the Vatican II clergy uh, talking about the hermeneutic of continuity between Vatican II and, and, and the Catholic teaching. It's like this ambiguous phrase where poof, the rabbit comes out of the hat and everything's okay. Yeah, well, and like the hermeneutic of continuity, the problem with B16 was that no one could show you where the continuity was. And that's the problem with this, too, that hewing more closely to the mind of the church, no one can show us how refusing the sacraments actually does that. And and obviously reading commentaries and moral theology books, uh, like we've quoted here tonight, um, if they're not showing us the mind of the church, perhaps they could tell us where to find it. Uh, yes, that's right. That's right. Somehow we've lost all lost our minds, right? <laughs> so anyway, Father, uh, I think that'll wrap up this show for or this evening. But as we close out this episode, we've covered the refusal of communion, when it's lawful for a minister to refuse communion, what the divine right of a Catholic to receive communion is, and some of the objections the Society of Pius V has to giving communion to many of the laity. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we close out the episode? Well, on this, this particular issue, as I say, it's, it's a real cross for people. And, uh, you know, one wishes that uh, I wish and uh, everyone else wishes that the Vice the Fifth Society would come to their senses and stuff like this and realize that what they're doing is not the mind of the church and um, that it really cannot be justified. And if you want to uh, maintain the traditions of the church and the principles that she's laid down, uh, you're not doing it with your current policy. And uh, the it is time to stop doing that, and it is uh, time to stop doing that uh, for your own good and certainly for the good of the members of the faithful because this is a truly needless division that has been uh, uh, that has been invented, and it is, is, is something which very much uh, separates uh, friends and uh, families. Uh, one from another, and has had terrible, terrible consequences um, during the uh, past many years in which it's it's uh, been enforced and caused an awful lot of heartbreak for absolutely nothing. And even in those that are not in state of accountant circles, I know personally of non-state of accountants or even non-Catholics that see this this infighting, this needless needless scandal that's among the faithful and you know they they want no part of it uh, they don't want to get involved and it and it keeps good people from coming to the right conclusions is what i found out in my own personal life yes yes and if you want to talk about scandal that is uh, that's an effect that is a true scandal and we pray that it comes to an end so well, Father, I think we will maybe devil into the rest of your article on Archbishop Tuck and the validity of uh, ordinations and uh, consecrations next time. But I'd like to thank you again for your time, and I look forward to talking to you next month as we continue this series. God bless, Father. 
you have a good blessing. God bless and have a, a, a blessed completion to your Lent. Thank you, Father. God bless. God bless you all. If you have any questions for Father Chicada or feedback on this episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us at mail at truerestoration.org, and we will pass along your questions and comments to Father Chicana. We would like to take this moment to remind you that all correspondence with us is strictly confidential. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and your faith, that you would please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who help make our network worthwhile. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donations you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or even a simple Ave for our work the next time you pray. For the restoration, I'm James Shrepper. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.